Take your Bibles this morning, please, and let's turn. We're going to to the chap the book of Acts. We are going to start to kind of pick up where we left off a couple of two or three weeks ago at chapter 15, verse 36, and we will read through 16, verse 10. Now hear God's word. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered for, to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray together as we come before God's holy word today. Our Father, we do say amen to your word. We do recognize that it is your word that we are coming before. And so we ask that you would give us hearts that are reverent before your word and hearts that are receptive, hearts that are eager to hear what our God would speak to us today. Because these aren't just words about you. These are words by you. These are your words that are written for us and so, Father, may we be keenly attentive to them. And as we hear them, Father, and as we learn their meaning, may we, Father, not just be hearers of these words, but by the power of your grace within us, may you continue the work to make us to be doers of your word. And so, Father, use your word this morning as the double-edged sword that it is to expose all of the sin and wherever it is that remains in our lives and to excise it from us and to continue to train us for righteousness and to continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I have a simple message for us. This is the message that um, we were going to look at last week in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, on the subject of divine providence and how the Holy Spirit guides by the providence of God those who are um, 
filled with the love of God as it has been poured out and shed abroad in our hearts, but by God's providence last week we were led in another direction and prohibited as Paul and Timothy were from preaching in Asia, we were prohibited from dealing with this passage last week by God's guidance. And so this week we're going to continue on in this study of the book of Acts and Acts chapter 15 and 16. And if you'll remember back with me a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the events of these verses through the lens of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Do you remember where he says that his life and his ministry were constrained, controlled by the love of Christ as it compelled him to do everything that he did in his life and as it constrained him in service to Jesus and Jesus' eternal kingdom. And so we were reflecting on what it looks like. What does it mean to be controlled by the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts? Those wonderfully picturesque words of Paul in Romans 5 and verse 5 where he says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts, shed abroad. Remember, the old King James puts it into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we've been thinking together really over the past several weeks, and we've been focused on the necessity and the importance of our sanctification, of our growth in grace and holiness and righteousness in our lives, and our perseverance in growing in godliness until the very end. We've been been focused on the great reality that our awesome God, by His grace, has already given us all of the divine power and grace and strength that we need for life and for godliness, for, for mortifying the sin that remains in us and for growing in holiness and obedience in our lives and walking by faith and not by sight and running the race with endurance, right? Until God takes us out of this world or until the blessed hope of the appearing of Jesus Christ in glory when He will usher us into the eternal kingdom of heaven. So, with reference to the book here that we've been studying of Acts, as we come out of what we've been looking at in in terms of the the Jerusalem Council in the first part of Acts 15, and enter now into the, the second major portion of the book of Acts and the second major missionary journey of the Apostle Paul also, what we've been seeing here is that the great love of God having been shed abroad through the Holy Spirit into the heart and into the life of the Apostle Paul, we're seeing how that has impacted his life and defined his life. We're seeing that love of Christ shed abroad in Paul's heart in action and manifested in various ways, controlling and compelling and constraining his life in service to Jesus in all kinds of ways. And those ways are so instructive for us as we too seek to cultivate a great life controlling love for the God who has shed his love abroad in our hearts because that's the only way as we are more and more constrained by God's love and by love for God that's the only way that true holiness and genuinely growing, thriving godliness, and increasing maturity in our faith, and true perseverance, that's the only way, through the love of God growing in our hearts, it's the only way it'll ever get forged. Otherwise, it'll be the product of our pride, and otherwise, it will not honor our God. It's only as we meditate deeply on His Word, and commune with our great God in unceasing prayer, and take our thoughts more and more captive to the obedience of Christ, and let the Holy Spirit cultivate this growing life, constraining life, controlling love for God, that's the only way that more and more our lives will start to be defined as no longer living for ourselves, right? But for Him who for our sake died and was raised. And that's the only way in which the the true and genuine fruits of holiness and godliness and maturity are going to actually be born into our lives. So what we looked at together, if you'll remember back with me a few weeks ago, from the 
closing verses of Acts 15, which Stan read again for us today, and then the opening verses of chapter 16, what we've been looking at is how, in the life of the Apostle Paul, when the love of God constrained him, first of all, God worked in Paul and through Paul in spite of Paul. Remember? Jesus Christ had, back in Acts chapter 9, encountered Paul as a, as a Pharisee, as an unrepentant sinner on the road to Damascus. He was still bound up in his sin. He was persecuting Christians. He was, Jesus said, persecuting Christ himself until Jesus unleashed divine mercy and grace on Paul and saved him in spite of himself, gave him new life. And there we saw, a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 15, Paul, who had been given so much grace in spite of his own sin, we saw how in his weakness he refused to give grace to John Mark. And that caused a bitter feud with Barnabas as Paul allowed his own fleshliness to cause division where there should have been gracious, humble, self-abasing, Christ-like unity. But still, again, in spite of Paul, God continued to be gracious to him. God continued to work in him. And God continued to work through him, which through the course of Paul's life and ministry would more and more come to control and define the way that he ministered and the grace that he had for other sinners, and, and, and the humility with which he would preach the gospel of the kingdom of Christ to others. And then secondly, we also saw, if you'll remember in Paul's life, when the love of Christ controlled Paul, the wisdom of God directed Paul. And so instead of being motivated by his own desires to do whatever he did, or instead of being motivated by the fear of man and what other people might think, or instead of being governed by the wisdom of this world, Paul was always guided by the wisdom of God, revealed in the Word of God, when the love of God was controlling him. And so we saw when he had Timothy circumcised, even though that was a a hard thing, a painful thing for Timothy to do, because for both of Paul and Timothy, being constrained by God's love meant that the gospel mattered more than what they wanted, than their own comfort, than what other people thought, what the world might think was best, because they were constrained by the love of Christ. And so when the love of God controls us, God works in us, in spite of us. And His, His, His grace towards us and towards our sins trains us for greater godliness and more love and graciousness in our own lives. And when the love of God controls us, the wisdom of God and the priorities of the kingdom of God and the gospel guide us. And they give more and more and greater and greater definition to the lives that we live in this world and to the things that we do and the choices that we make so that we're less and less conformed to the the values of this world and to our own desires because we who by His grace have been given everlasting life know we don't live for ourselves. Our lives are not our own. And so we live for the one who for our sake died and was raised. And so today, then, that brings us to a third thing that I want us to focus on in this text in terms of how the life that is being constrained by the love of God lives in this world. How does the the life-constraining love of God manifest itself in those people in whom the unfathomable love of God has been poured out? And the thing I want to focus on today is the title of the sermon indicates is this, that when the love of God controls us, the Holy Spirit of God who has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts guides us. And for this emphasis, we're going to look at these verses, verses 6 through 10 that Stan read for us a few minutes ago of Acts chapter 16. So Luke tells us in verse 6, 
that after Paul and Barnabas had separated, with Barnabas taking Mark with him to go back through Cyprus, and Paul setting off with Silas in a different direction, heading north from Antioch, up through Syria, and and back up to the cities of Lystra and Derbe, where they met up with, with Timothy, remember. Now verse 6 says that the three of them, Paul and Silas and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, in the central part of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, you can picture in your mind, having been, Luke says, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And by Asia, Luke means the Roman province of Asia, which lay to their west. It's the westernmost part of the area of Turkey. They had to pass through it to traverse it, but they weren't allowed somehow by the Holy Spirit to stop in any of the cities in Asia and preach the gospel there. Remarkable, right? Was preaching the gospel a good thing to do? Absolutely, but God wouldn't let them do it there. He had a different plan for them and somehow by His providence guided them to that different plan. And that's what we want to focus on here today. They wanted, they planned to go from Galatia and and, and go all through the province of Asia as they moved towards the west coast of Asia Minor and bring the gospel, bring the word of God to every town and place that they came. But they were prevented And then look at verse 7, says something very similar. When they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to do that either. So they passed by Mycenae and went all the way down to Troas. Now, Bithynia, where they wanted to go, is the province that's to the north of Galatia and Asia. It's where modern-day Istanbul is. And so what Paul and Silas did was to go from Galatia, cutting again through the northern part of the province of Asia and and bypassing all of the cities that they wanted to preach to there and not going up into Bithynia where there were all kinds of cities and people that they could have gone and ministered the word of God to. And, and, and they had to bypass all of that until they got all the way out to Troas, which is all the way across Turkey and almost to the border of Greece. And when they got to Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, verse 9 says, and he saw a Macedonian man standing before him, Macedonia further still to the west, outside of Turkey now, across the Aegean Sea now beyond Greece now. And this Macedonian man said, come all the way over to Macedonia because we need help. And so God, see, had a plan for them to go all the way through Asia and past it, and all the way past Greece and into Macedonia to bring the help of God's Word and the Gospel to the people there. And His providence guided them in spite of them and in spite of their godly desires to make plans to go to other places. And so, look at verse 10, Luke says, and notice how here Luke uses the pronoun we. Do you notice that? That's accurate to the Greek. And so I think by this point, Luke must have come also to join up with Paul and Silas and Timothy And the four of them together concluded, because they'd been prevented somehow from preaching to the cities in Asia, they'd been forbidden and and prevented from even going into Bithynia, and now Paul's had this vision. All of this meant they concluded that God, the Holy Spirit, was providentially guiding and calling them all along to go and preach the gospel to the people in Macedonia. Those people needed help. God had revealed to them, and Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy concluded that the gospel was the help that they needed, and they were right. So next week we'll start, or or the week after maybe, we'll start to see when we get to verse 11, from Troas there on the coast of Asia Minor, they jumped on a ship and it went across the Aegean Sea to the island of Samothrace, which is in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And from there, the next day, they caught a ship to Neapolis, which is all the way in Macedonia. And they made their way all the way to the leading city of Philippi so that they could bring the gospel to the Macedonians. But for our time today, this is what I want us to think about together. I want us to think about this 
this remarkable guidance that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were given by the Holy Spirit in order to get somewhere that they didn't plan to go. And in spite of their plans, which were good plans and honorable plans and God-pleasing plans, God somehow directed them to a completely different place. Robert Tannehill says this in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, Luke, who's of course the narrator of Acts, shows keen interest in the dialogue between human purposes and divine purposes indicating that Jesus' witnesses to Christians must patiently endure the frustrations of their own plans in order to discover the opportunities that God providentially holds open to them. Now, don't you want to live your life that way? Don't you sometimes go, this is a good thing for me to do, and I'm going to make a plan to do it, and then God frustrates your plans. Do you acknowledge that it's God frustrating your plans? Or do you just go, I'm frustrated because fate frustrated my plans. Or that sinful person or irritating person over there frustrated my plans. And so now I'm going to grumble about that. And I'm going to be discontent about that. And I'm just going to express all my frustration about that. Or do you say, God is sovereign over all of these plans. And as I make my plans, I will trust God to providentially guide my steps. As the book of Proverbs says. So, again, Jesus' witnesses must patiently endure the frustration of their own plans by the providence of God in order to discover the opportunities that God holds open to them. And these opportunities may not be the next logical step by human calculation, but they are the will of God. That's how I want to live my life. Logically calculating according to the wisdom of Scripture what I think God wants me to do, but but open to allowing the Holy Spirit to override my logic and my plans and do something better. Right? Amen? See, it's this dialogue, as Tannehill puts it, this this interface between human purpose and divine purpose that that, that we need to think about and that I want us to focus on together today. Paul said, remember, in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that we looked at a few weeks ago, that people whose lives are controlled by the love of God that has been shed abroad in their hearts are people who are no longer living for themselves. I don't just want to do what I want to do. I want to do what God wants to do. And if God uses His providence to prevent me from doing something that I wanted to do, that's better. And I want to be open to that. And I want to know how to follow that lead of the Holy Spirit. We live for Him who died for us and who was raised for us. And so the question is, how does that get fleshed out? in actuality, in terms of day-to-day living, in terms of the decisions that we make and and what we do with our time. How can we know if, if our purposes are in line with God's purposes in daily living? I mean, it'd be awfully nice, wouldn't it? If we always, in every decision and at every moment, had the benefit of the kind of thing that Paul and Silas and Timothy encountered here. Like visions, visible manifestations, audible voices say, don't go to Scotts Valley today, go down Highway 9 to Santa Cruz instead, right? That'd be nice. (laughs) To always have the benefit of, of God just speaking directly. Now, I don't know, and no one knows, because Luke doesn't reveal the specifics to us here about how exactly the Holy Spirit, who's also referred to here as the Spirit of Christ, how exactly did the Holy Spirit forbid Paul and Silas from preaching the word in the province of Asia? We don't know. Did he he speak audibly to them? No, speaking the gospel here. Uh, Or did did he give them laryngitis so that they literally couldn't? 
I don't know. Did he appear in a vision like later when they were directed to go to Macedonia? Was there some kind of divine providence? Some, maybe a natural disaster of some kind? Every, everywhere they went, earthquakes happened, and so they had to keep moving? I don't know. We're not told. Just that somehow it was made abundantly clear to Paul and to Silas and to Timothy, and eventually it seems Luke with them, that God was divinely directing their path and even riding their, overriding their own purposes with, with his own and making it abundantly clear to them. So on the one hand, we don't have the benefit of being Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles during the days when the Word of God was being recorded and it wasn't completely written yet, and when God not infrequently did, in fact, speak directly and audibly to His people or give divinely appointed visions like He did in the Old Testament with Zechariah and Daniel or or here with Paul, or appear directly and visibly like He did in the glory cloud leading the Israelites through the wilderness. I mean, it'd be great if God used means like that in our lives so that we could always be 100% sure that our human purposes were, were lined up with His divine will. And, and God did work like that at particular times in the past, but He doesn't ordinarily work that way now. He could, but ordinarily He doesn't, because ordinarily, now that His Word is complete, God wants us primarily to be guided and to know that His His word is a sufficient guide for us to live our lives according to, right? In all of its fullness and completion now, God's word is a trustworthy lamp for our feet and light for our path, as Psalm 119.105 says, so that we can use it to frame up all of our decisions and to understand all of our circumstances through the divine light of God's all-sufficient word. And it's the all-sufficient Word of God that tells us, right, that our lives are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that, doesn't it? And so we can say, well, is this just something I want to do? Or might it be better for me to realize that my life not being my own, I need to pray for God to reveal to me what pleases Him. We were bought by God with the price of Jesus' own blood, the Word of God divinely reveals. And so because of that reality... We need to honor God with our bodies and in every aspect of our lives. That's what God's Word tells us in 1 Corinthians and in a lot of other places. And it's the Word of God that reveals to us that there are certain things that do honor God and then there are things that do not honor God. Things like lust, all kinds of sexual immorality, greed and laziness and bitterness and drunkenness and violence and gossip and slander and all kinds of other things that our flesh might desire at any given moment, but they don't honor God. So, since we belong to Him and our lives are not our own, we need to recognize the temptations to all those kinds of things and and put them off. And put on instead the righteousness of Christ. As God, God's word tells us in Colossians 3 and lots and lots of other places. You have died, Colossians 3.3, 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what's real. That's what's true. That's what we are as Christians. And so, therefore, because of that reality of what we are, Colossians 3.5... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of, the, uh, of things like these, the wrath of God is coming. Don't live in those things anymore. They don't honor God, and He's going to pour wrath out on anybody who walks in these ways. And in these things, you too once walked, once, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. You have put off the old self with its practices. You have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's what we are. And so as God's chosen ones who are holy in Him, who are beloved by Him, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, 
If someone has a complaint against another one, forgiving one another first, not punishing one another first, or withdrawing from one another first. Because the Lord has forgiven you. He didn't withdraw from you. He came down here and died for you to reconcile Himself to you. So be that way with each other, right? Above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. All of this is what Paul means when he says there in that same passage in Colossians 3 and verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you see it? Right? If it's tempting to say, well, I I don't know what to do and I don't know how to live my life and I don't know how to deal with these people in my life and I don't know how to avoid temptation in my life and I wish God would just speak to me and tell me what to do. If it's ever tempting, then just say, hello, He has spoken in His Word and it is sufficient. Very, very often when we're wondering what to do, it's not because God isn't screaming it at us. It's because we're not listening. It's because we're saying, you know what, I know I could go to the Word and find the wisdom that I need, but I don't want to because I want to do what I want to do. And we need to repent of that. We're not letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly because our minds and our hearts are more focused on our own desires than with the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts and in doing what pleases and honor, honors Him. If you want to know what pleases and honors Him, trust me, you, you can find it. So on the one hand, in other words, when we're wondering about the will of God, a huge amount of the time, the answers are revealed in the absolutely clear statements in the Word of God about what pleases Him, what honors Him. What is sin according to his law? What is foolishness according to the wisdom that is revealed in places like, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, 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 and James and, and everywhere else all throughout his word? The problem very often isn't that God hasn't spoken, isn't that God hasn't revealed his will with crystal clarity. It's that we're not listening. Because we're not letting His Word dwell richly in our hearts and in our minds. And so we're distracted by our own thoughts, our own desires, the wisdom of the world. Because that's what we're more focused on than than His Word and His voice. And again, the reason why we don't let the Word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts is because we still want at least vast portions of our lives to be our own. Right? There are certain areas that we're going to allow to be conformed to the will of God. I'm definitely blocking out 10.30 to to 12.30 on Sundays. That's His. Don't ask me about after that. Certainly don't ask me about like Tuesday. That's, That's mine, right? This is the Lord's day. The other days are my days. Nope. Your life is not your own. Your life, not your Sunday. Your life. Not yours. Major portions of our lives we want to keep back for ourselves. And at the outset, see, that's what has to start to change in our thinking and in our living. We have to seek to honor God and to please God, and we have to purpose to live according to God's purposes in every area of our lives. Growing persevering, maturing, constantly. Remember 1st, 2nd Peter chapter 1? In full throttle godliness. We saw that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? Now, full throttle godliness, as we talked about from 2nd Peter 1, doesn't always mean full throttle physical activity 24-7. Right? God does give rest as a gift and as a blessing and as a command, in fact. right? He patterned the world to include times and seasons of deliberate rest because he rested on the seventh day. And so he blesses us with rest. And learning to rest is a big part of trusting God in the way that we live. 
And enjoying the rest that He gives to us is a wonderful blessing in the pursuit of godliness, right? We have to acknowledge that. Jesus Himself was in a state of godly rest in the back of the boat during the storm on the Sea of Galilee, wasn't He? It's, see, here's the problem. It's when rest stops being the grateful experience of God's kindness and becomes a selfish indulgence and turns into laziness and slothfulness and idleness. That's when the problem arises. Work hard for the glory and the honor of God and then rest gratefully when God providentially gives the rest in order to receive the strength that you need to keep on running with endurance. Similarly, according to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and other portions of Scripture, God blesses us with enjoyment in life. And so saying, I want to live for Him and my life is not my own and I want His desires to trump my desires doesn't mean that you're not going to have desirable and enjoyable experiences in your life when you're pursuing the will of God. Enjoyment, recreation, pleasure, good food, good drink, these are good gifts from our good and kind God that are not inconsistent when we enjoy them with full-throttle godliness. So long as we enjoy them in ways that honor Him and don't become self-gratifying and they don't become expressions of our sinful flesh. God's Word, when it's dwelling in us richly, supplies us no end of wisdom about how to do that. To govern our decisions, to light our path through life in the love of God that is controlling us. And as the Holy Spirit is guiding us by way of that lamp to our feet that His Word is. So, all kinds of areas, right? Should I look at this thing on the internet or on TV? I mean, that's, that's usually a question that can be answered pretty easily by asking basic questions. Well, is it my desire first or God's desire first? Is it lust? Is it fleshly desire that wants to watch this? Does it honor Jesus to watch this? Is it entertainment that is provided in any way that might be displeasing to Him? Does it cause me to want to do His glory more? Is it, is it feeding my desire to live for self? Or is it my heart expressing gratitude to God for this wonderful thing and this enjoyment and this rest that He gives me through this activity? Or do I have to ignore questions like that in order to enjoy this? Be honest with yourself if you're serious about growing in godliness. Questions like, um, something happened in a relationship should I, should I go to all of my friends and, and talk to them about what this person did? Well, is, is it the good of that person? Is it the blessing of that person that makes me want to talk to other people about them? Or is it because it makes me feel good to tell people about the bad things that this person did? To gossip about them? To pretend that somehow their sin is, is more troublesome than my own? Or this person sinned against me and I want to go and I want to confront their sin. Well, have you made sure to remove the log out of your own eye before addressing the speck in that person's eye? And so again, are you going in humility? Are you going in love? Are you going with the intention of building them up or tearing them down? Those are the logs, right? Is love driving it? Is pride driving it? Is the desire of God driving it or is it just what I want to do? There's a ton of these kinds of questions, right? And sufficient answers. God's Word should make it pretty easy if it's really dwelling richly in us and if we're being constrained by the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts, then being full of humility and love and gratitude and wisdom, the Holy Spirit guides us according to the Word of God to do what pleases and honors God and blesses and builds up others if we're living according to the reality that our lives are not our own and that we belong to Him. And if we strive by His love to do what pleases and honors Him in every single area, not just in whichever areas we're willing to surrender. Then, with the 
love of God and the Word of God richly dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit guides us, then we, we mature in self-forsaking godliness. And the blessings that He gives us along the way will be far greater than anything that we could experience by living for self and according to our own fleshly pride. So that's the basic foundational level, but, and there's, there's plenty of opportunity for all of us to grow just on that basic level, isn't there? But there are other areas, right? Certain areas in our lives sometimes when we are, like Paul and Silas and Timothy were, forsaking what they wanted, pursuing the will of God, doing what would please Him, and, and not themselves. When we are, are forsaking self, putting off sin, putting on righteousness, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly and, and be the light to our paths, there are certain times, right, when we are faced with decisions that we don't know how to make. And when we've, we've made sure that, that one decision isn't a sinful violation of God's revealed will, we, we've, we've checked that box. We've checked the box that it doesn't violate His wisdom. This isn't foolishness according to what He's revealed in His Word. We're assured. I, I've, got, I've got two choices here, and, and neither one of them dishonor God. How do we know? How can we strive to be guided by the Holy Spirit in all areas of our lives, even when we've checked the boxes of the big categories like God's law and God's holiness and God's wisdom? George Mueller, you've heard this name, and I've, 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 I've referenced him many times before. Was a, he was a godly Christian evangelist in England in the 1800s. He very famously ran a series of orphanages and schools, ministering to more than 10,000 children during his lifetime. He lived 92 years in this world. And of the many, many things that George Mueller was famous for and was known for, one of the things was that he had this remarkable ability to make decisions that other people were certain were the wrong decisions and that would turn out disastrously. And Mueller had this this remarkable ability to pursue endeavors that most people thought for sure were doomed to failure but instead he would experience massive success in spite of all of the odds that seemed to be stacked against him and all of the the doubts that so many people had about him. And so people would ask him how this was. Here's his answer written in one of his journals. Throughout my life, Nothing was undertaken, not even the smallest endeavor or expenditure, without my feeling certain first that I was in God's will. Now, can I just say, brothers and sisters, that that is the perspective of someone who knows that their life is not their own. Usually we go, yeah, it's with reference to the really big ones that I say, okay, I'm going to pray about God's will. But day to day, the little things, that I've, I've got this. And that's just up to me. And what I feel like or what I want to do, as long as I'm not explicitly sinning. Mueller wasn't satisfied with, as long as you're not explicitly sinning. Mueller wanted the best. I told this story before too, and I wasn't planning on saying it today, but when I was in college there were certain classes where the instructors took attendance. And if you weren't present, you would, your grade would be affected negatively. And then there were certain classes and certain professors who never took attendance, and so your grade wouldn't be affected. And as long as you studied and could pass the exams, you could pass the course and get whatever grade you earned. And so my brain concluded, I don't need to go to those classes. I'll just read the book and borrow somebody's notes and and pass. And so I'm walking down the sidewalk one day and a friend of mine's running because he's been a little late for the class that I'm in with him, but I'm heading the other way. And he goes, where are you going? Class is this way. And I said, well, we don't have to go. They don't take attendance. It's not against the rules. It's not wrong not to go. And he just stops and he goes, so that's how you live? Just avoid what's wrong and don't pursue what's best? And he ran off to class. 
I never, ever forgot that. Is that how we live, Christians? Just make sure you're not sinning and you'll be fine, right? Everything else you get to do, whatever you want to do. Mueller wasn't content with that. He said, I want to know that even if it's uncomfortable, it's what God wants. There was not throughout my life anything undertaken, not even the smallest endeavor or expenditure that I undertook without feeling certain that I was in God's will. Now, it's hard in America where we so easily take so much for granted, right? We have so much abundance. Our fleshly pride can just easily feel entitled instead of grateful. We can easily get self-indulgent here instead of living for the pleasures of God. But I think those words of George Mueller capture what, what God's word reveals to us about being constrained by the love of God and not living for our own pleasures and desires on ourselves, and, but, but, but instead being guided by His Holy Spirit. It starts there. Can we say that, even the smallest things? Or have we very carefully selected which things we're going to do according to God's will, happily leaving the rest of them to be guided by our own desires? Because we're not willing for Him to be the Lord of those parts of our lives. So when people would then ask George Mueller, how could he know? How could he be certain that all of these undertakings and all of these endeavors and expenditures, even the little ones, were being made according to God's will? Here's how he's answered. Here's how he answered. And I've shared this before, but I think it's worth sharing again, and I think this is a good place in our study of God's word to do it. Here was his answer. Six steps. First, Mueller said this, in everything that I do, I seek to get my heart into such a state that it has not any will of its own in regard to any given matter. And the only way to do that, Christians, is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, to be unceasing in prayer, in communion with your God, to be constrained always constantly by the love of Christ instead of love for self, and to honestly pray to him, not my will, but yours be done. Let it not be for me first, but for you. And I believe God answers prayers like that every single time. And I think we all think that. I think we all believe that. But very often we don't pray like that because we aren't really willing to risk not getting what we want. Mueller said that nine-tenths of the difficulties that we have in knowing the will of God in any given matter in our lives will be overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever that may be. It's going to become awfully clear to you really quick. When one is truly in this state, he said, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what the will of God is in any given circumstance. But I'll tell you what, that takes, it doesn't, it doesn't happen automatically, it won't be your instinct, it takes practiced, deliberate, discipline. And our impulse is, is not to make decisions that way, it's just to sort of instinctively and intuitively do what feels best to us. So then Mueller said, step two, in making decisions according to the will of God, I do not leave the result to simple feelings or impressions because if I do, I make myself liable to great and disastrous delusions about what the will of God might be. He knew, and we should admit, how, he knew how prone his heart and his instinctive feelings were to selfish pride and fleshly desire and and the deceptions of the devil, and the temptations of the world. And he never wanted any of those to guide him instead of the Holy Spirit. So instead, step three, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. Because that is how the Spirit guides us, like we just talked about. When we're being controlled by the love of God and His Word is dwelling richly in us then we're not being guided by love for self or by worldly or, or fleshly wisdom. Mueller said the spirit and the word must always be combined. 
Because if I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, again, I lay myself open to great and disastrous delusions. The Word is the guide. The Word is the lamp. God isn't going to speak to you some wisdom that isn't already in His Word. And if you think He did, then you might consider that whoever spoke it could be your imagination or somebody trying to deceive you. And then having sought to be driven by God's will and not his own, and having forsaken his own feelings and impressions as being reliable guides, and having sought the Holy Spirit's guidance in connection always with the Word of God, he said, then I take into account providential circumstances. And that, I believe, is where we see Paul and Silas being guided by the Holy Spirit in Acts 16. I mean, God did speak to Paul through a vision. We have better than the vision even in the all-sufficient living active Word of God. But before God spoke to Paul in the vision, we don't know how, but through some providential means, God made it clear to Paul and Silas and Timothy not to stop in Asia, not to travel to Bithynia. And that's how the Gospel made it all the way to Macedonia, where God had purposed to work through His Word to shed His love abroad in a lot of hearts and lives. And again, do you believe, Christian, do you really believe that our God is truly sovereign over every single aspect of His creation? God says in Isaiah 46 that He has decreed the end. We don't know what it will be. We don't know when it will come. But He's decreed exactly to the microsecond when, and He has decreed exactly what it will be. And Isaiah 46 says, He's decreed that end from the beginning. Let there be light. And what that means, what it has to mean, is that He has decreed every single instance in between in order to get from let there be light to whatever the end He has decreed is without any deviation, without any alteration. The marvelous testimony of Scripture is that God is sovereign over it all. Your flat tires, those red lights that won't change, those people that cut you off, those people that never call you back on the phone when they're supposed to, those mailmen that lose important documents, those county workers that don't mail you important documents. God's sovereign over all of that. Listen to the words of the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink on this. He says, God's good pleasure alone explains all being and all diversity of being. That things are and that they are as they are is grounded solely in God. All things, even in the inanimate world, exist and happen in accordance with the counsel of God. All things are grounded in God's ordinances. Heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, summer and winter, seed time and harvest are ordered, both in their unity and in all their diversity, by God, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. He's just echoing the the testimony of Scripture in places like Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Do you believe that? Is that how you view all of the circumstances of your life, even the hard ones, even the painful ones? Not just as unfortunate or unlucky but as ordered ultimately by God's eternal counsel and decree. Is that how you respond? It's not how I respond to all my circumstances. Not just when they're pleasant. In the pleasant circumstances, we're tempted to to boast in our pride. And in the unpleasant ones, we're tempted to indulge somehow to complain, to bicker, and to sin in order to compensate for what we feel like we're lacking and weren't given, right? Or can we see all of our circumstances, both pleasant and painful, as wisely and eternally ordered by the holy counsel of God's inscrutable will in order to accomplish His perfect purposes for our good? If so, 
then a painful providence might not be seen as something to avoid, but as God's good guidance in a direction that we wouldn't take according to our own wisdom if we were only being guided by our own ambitions and our own desires, if we were living for self. Mueller said that God-ordained providential circumstances plainly indicate God's will in connection with His Word and Spirit. And when our wills are not consumed with self and our minds are focused on His Word and our perspective is governed by His sovereign purposes, we won't just see those providences in light of our own desires. We'll see them as divine indicators of God's good work in guiding our steps. Again, Proverbs 16, right? Verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And what that means is that lives that are controlled by the love of God and guided by the Spirit of God through the wisdom and the Word of God are able then to interpret the providence of God in the intersection between human purpose and divine purpose. As we we plan our way in order to please and honor God, allowing Him to order our steps according to His good and perfect will. And the last step in Mueller's strategy for walking in God's will in all areas of his life is simply this. And these all go together. This isn't like one day I do this and the next day. This is what you do in every decision. You you follow this little formula in every decision. The last thing is I ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me aright. And he concludes like this. Thus, through prayer to God and the study of the word of God and much reflection... I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace, he repeats the process two or three more times. And if my mind is still at peace, I proceed accordingly. And in trivial matters and in transactions involving the most critically important issues, I have found this method always effective. Now, he died at 92 years old, and here's what he said two years before his death. As a 90-year-old man, he said, I never remember in all my Christian course that I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching and leading of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of the Word and with much diligent prayer, but that I have always been rightly directed. But if honesty of heart and uprightness of God were were lacking in my heart, if I was doing what I wanted, if I did not patiently wait upon God for instruction, if I was not in His Word constantly, if I preferred my own desires, if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the Word, I made many grievous mistakes. All of that that he describes is what it looks like to seek to live all of life controlled by the love of God, shed abroad in our hearts, and guided in every aspect by the Holy Spirit according to the all-sufficient Word of God and His good and perfect providence to accomplish His will in us and and then through us in this world. Uh, Wendy and I came here in 2001. We made a plan. We had a decision. One church was offering, and this church was offering, which, what do we do? And we've tried to follow this basic pattern, and we ended up here, and it was not what we planned. And there were times when we said, why didn't we stay in San Diego? And now we look back and say, I am so thankful that God guided our steps, and we get to be here. (sighs) Our lives are not our own. We've been bought. The price was the blood of Jesus. Through the sacrifice of His blood for our sins, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, let that love constrain you. Let it control you in every aspect of your life. Let the Holy Spirit guide you in every area of your life through the Word and through a a divine wisdom that the Word gives to be able to interpret providence by, let your will bow and submit to His holy will and grow in godliness and mature you by faith as you live less for yourself and more and more and more for the glory of the Lord.
Let's pray. Our God and our Father, all of this takes a lot of wisdom. And we need all of that from you. And you supply it through your word and through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And through your providence as you order the affairs of our lives. God, would you help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Would you help us not to let there be any areas of our lives that we are unwilling to surrender to your lordship? Father, would you use your word as a double-edged sword to pierce down into the very recesses of our hearts where bone and marrow are united even, the deepest parts of us, to expose any of the ways in which we say, this part is mine. And on this, in this area, I will do what I want to do. And help us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, by your living active word, by your love shed abroad in our heart to say, not my will, but thine be done in every area. And Father, help us to know how you guide our steps and to be grateful for your guidance and to follow wherever you lead not complaining and being willing to bear up any cross and suffer any loss so that your will could be accomplished in and through us. Father, mature us and grow us and strengthen us and glorify yourself through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your bulletins, turn to page 12. Let's all stand together and let's sing in response to God the Holy Spirit that he would work through our willing souls. Let's let's sing together.